0: Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian Literature for the Inebriated. I'm Matt Garasimovich, a PhD student in Russian Lit. And I'm Cameron Lalana.
1: This is a podcast where me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. This week we're really excited to be joined by Christina Gorcheva-Newberry. Christina's stories and essays appeared or are forthcoming in many, many uh, publications and magazines, Subtropic, Zoetrope, All Story, Joyland, Electric Literature, The Southern Review, Indiana Review, Epiphany, Gulf Coast, Tri-Quarterly, Flyway, Slice, Prairie Schooner, Nimrod, and elsewhere. Her fiction was selected as a finalist for multiple awards, including eight Pushcart nominations, the 2016 Dundee International Book Prize, the 2019 Prairie Schooner Book Prize, and the 2020 Indiana Review Fiction Prize. Christina is the winner of the 2013 Catherine N. Porter Prize for Fiction, the 2015 Tennessee Williams Scholarship for the Sewanee Writers Conference, and the 2020 Raz Schumacher Prairie Schooner Book Prize in Fiction for her first collection of stories, What Isn't Remembered, which was long for the 2022 Penn slash Robert W. Bingham Prize for debut short story collection. Uh, and I just got the just got the note What Isn't Remembered has also been shortlisted for the 2022 Stanford Libraries um, William Soroyan International Prize. It's a lot of prizes. Um, Christina is a Russian-Armenian émigré who was raised by a mother who believed that unless you read every day, you did not deserve dinner. Christina graduated from Moscow State Linguistic University and worked as a school teacher and an interpreter before moving to the United States. She received an MA in English from Radford University and an MFA in Creative Writing from Holland's University. We are here, of course, to talk about uh, Christina's debut novel, The Orchard, which was recently published in March of 2022 by Ballantine Books, which is a division of Penguin Random House. So, Christina, thank you so much for joining us today. If you have any any, any plugs, anything you want to talk at the beginning, please...
2: Thank you for inviting me. It's an honor. I've been listening to your podcast. And it has the most fascinating name, Tipsy Tolstoy. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, we spent a lot of time picking the name. Um, we are really excited. We had both a really good time reading The Orchard. Mm-hmm. Um, Thank well, you. A, a good time until certain parts. And it was just a real just a real kick, in, I mean, like a roundhouse kick in the gut uh, at certain points. But we can, we can talk about that
0: <laughs> yes yes but before we get into talking about the the reading today um matt christina what uh if anything are we are we drinking today
2: well i'm drinking tea very black and very hot i always do that
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a good habit it's a good habit when i got back from russia i was i was drinking like four or five just black tea every day every morning so it took a while to break the habit But uh, although i would like to go back
1: <clears throat> i'm Kind of thematically on on hmm. on topic for today, I'm drinking uh, Hearing, which is the original cherry liqueur, according to the bottle that I'm drinking from. <laughs> the Orchard based on Chekhov's play, Cherry Orchard, so I have um, some nice liqueur in my glass. <laughs> How about you, Cameron?
0: I am drinking, I was trying to be uh, on brand, so I've got just plain neat vodka in a mug and uh, some, some pickles. I was going to bring some black bread too, but I decided probably I didn't want to edit out my crumbs uh in (laughs) on the on the cutting floor Mm -hmm. but uh yes so all all very on on brand for for the reading today
1: yes absolutely
0: since we have christina here we don't want to belabor our usual point about our patreon but we would like to extend a thank you to our newest patron pack rob as well as a thank you to caitlin and janice for upping their contributions
1: so in lieu of a full summary because we don't want to spoil any major aspects of the book we want to promote people buying a copy and
0: reading it yes absolutely the orchard is a coming-of-age story set in the ussr in the 1980s where best friends anya and milka tried to envision a free and joyful future for themselves they spend their summers at anya's dacha just outside of moscow and lazing in the apple orchard listening to queen songs while fantasing about trips abroad and the lives of american teenagers meanwhile anya's parents talk about world war ii the blockade and the hardships they've endured um and so we were kind of following them through the years and we won't go too much into the, um, into the summary because this really is best experienced, uh, kind of without, uh, without too much knowledge. I went, I tried not to learn, uh, not to read too many summaries going in and, um, it, it hell, a lot of the, the parts of the book when they, when they, when they're kind of kicking you, yeah, they really, they really come through with in, in a, in a, well, I guess a good way is the wrong, the wrong term, but it was very, very effective and really moving. Uh, but, before we talk about the orchard uh, in, in particular, we want to chat with you a little bit about uh, your own journey as a writer. Uh, you know, getting into it, and you know, maybe even some of you know, some of the habits. Always interesting to talk to to writers about how they you know their their habits and rituals in writing. Um, so, can you tell us a little bit about how how you got into into writing fiction?
2: Sure. I was a student, a graduate student at Radford University, and it is there that I took a class on women's lit and a second class on political art of Tony Morrison and Virginia Woolf. And I have never, ever read those two authors before, even though I graduated from the State Linguistic University in Moscow, but all the authors we studied there, they were male, Hmm. American authors and British. It so happened. Um, And I think those two women authors those two geniuses inspired me to write my own fiction but also there was a professor that i talk about her all the time uh dr moira baker who taught those classes and she was the one who came up to me after one of the classes and suggested i should start writing and since i've never written anything in russian so i was conflicted at the beginning. And I said, well, you know, there's so many native speakers and, you know, who write in English then they can probably tell better stories. And she said, no, I think you have a story to tell. You can tell it well. And, you know, so what if it's not your native tongue? Nabokov did it. Conrad did it. You could do it. And I believed her.
0: <laughs> and clearly she was right.
2: I, I hope.
0: I think so. After, after after reading their book, I, I think I, I, I agree.
2: Thank you. It's a long journey. It took me over 20 years. Mm. I've published many, many stories and essays and poetry, but just recently had two books coming out within six
1: months. Yeah, that's a lot. Which is a
2: miracle. It's a miracle, really.
1: <laughs> um, I wanted to ask because you're first collection what isn't remembered is a short story collection and this is your your debut novel so I wanted to I was wondering whether you approached it a little bit differently than your your first short story collection I was listening to an interview that you did with Community Bookstore and you likened your process uh, of writing to building a house for a feeling to live in you said if in five years I can go back to the story and it evokes the same feeling then you would consider it a success and so that I mean yeah, so I'm I'm interested in in seeing what's the difference between your your approach to short story uh, versus novel, and I'm kind of assuming that is your maybe the way you might approach the the similarities between the two.
2: Yes, <clears throat> when I said that, I specifically meant a short story. Mm-hmm. It can, you know, of course applies to writing a novel as well. One difference, and a major difference, that. When you write a short story because it's short it has no space every word counts Mm -hmm. so you constantly think about what to take out as opposed to writing a novel a larger landscape so you're thinking what should i include put in Mm -hmm. also uh most of the time short stories are written from one or two points of view generally from one point of view and i've always approached a short story as as a house also meaning that I would pick a place in the house where I would stand and from that angle I would observe the characters and you know because the story is short you can't travel from one room into another to another to another you just stand there and you get all those moments of being that you record and on a in a short story Novel is large landscape. You can travel up and down the steps go to any room you wish if you had to compare the two. Also, I'm often reminded what uh, Raymond Carver said about writing a short story, that a short story is a fury of small punches. We can't do that with a novel uh, because if you do it in about 30, 40 pages... You'll be so exhausted and you won't be able (laughs) to continue. Mm -hmm. So it can have one big punch, but you know, or several, but it cannot be a fury of small punches. So there's just a different feeling that you pursue Mm -hmm. with engaging on such a large journey. I'm also, when I'm working on a novel, I'm also reminded of Morrison, who said that she's like a. An artist works with a teeny brush on a large canvas. And so when you step back, you can see the immensity or enormity of that canvas.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Like Morrisons. But when you work on it so close, chapter by chapter, sentence by sentence, you only see mini strokes. So they're not punches or strokes of color of feelings. Um, of characters the presentations but then in the end you hold this thing and it's all yours Mm
0: -hmm.
2: and it is a canvas of many colors and many characters many feelings many emotions and many events and much um, to me much sadness because it's like having a child Mm -hmm. Um, you have baby blues in the end (laughs)
1: yeah how did you feel when you were able to step away from your canvas after writing the novel how did it feel to see it in in a beautifully illustrated cover in a nice book did it still evoke the emotion that you had hoped when you got to you know as you're reading through yeah
2: yes because the novel originally was written some years ago and then you know I wrote something else and I rewrote it and I rewrote it and has been rewritten several times. So I every time you know I would go back to it, the feeling would still be there waiting for me. Mm -hmm. Um so it does carry that longing, I should say, for Childhood friendship,
0: mm.
2: first love. You know, I consider actually novels, and I, I said this somewhere already, that um to me novels are um, second tries at first things, you know, first friendships, mm. first loves. So you get to experience that again and again and again.
0: So mm-hmm. that's interesting. When when you're writing, do you have like particular ways you come about like okay, I need to sit down? Uh, like every t- every day or every week, like okay, this is how I do it, or coming to you and like okay, I'm building the story, I've got to get it out, like or working specific times. How, which what's kind of your process for going about it?
2: Well, I don't write every day, and it's not because I'm lazy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's just um, life gets ahead of you, and yeah, makes sense. you know, I used to teach, but also used to have a small child. So, and then the child was growing and was um, getting into music. He's a pianist. So I had the moments where I would write during his practices, meaning that I'm constantly in a sound cloud, but then there were scenes that I had to write or I have to write in quiet. So I had to work around the schedule. Mm -hmm. So, but I write whenever I can and whenever I have something to say. I am not one of those people who sit down at the very certain time every day and you know stare at the blank page. I don't do that. And blank page doesn't terrify me. Actually, it excites me. There's so much ahead, so much you can do with a blank page. <laughs> so I get very <laughs> excited. There's something new. I'm just so excited. But yeah. but that's how that's how I work. But I also work by, you know, I write by ear. So, uh, there has to be an element of surprise for me and maybe for a reader too, but for me, no matter how well I plan, I have to, that moment of surprise is very important to me. And it's not because I can't control my characters. In fact, it's that I know that they're real if they surprise me by doing mm. what
1: they do. I like that. It's
0: interesting. You mentioned elsewhere that one of the challenges of writing in first person is that it starts to coincide with your own voice. So is that kind of like working for that element of surprise is kind of how is that you keep externalizing them or making them be real people in a way that you're kind of like almost a conduit telling someone else's story?
2: You have to separate yourself from your characters, even though they're all your children. So they they have traces of your DNA (laughs) one way or another. Um, But... They're not me. And it's, you know, like your child. Your child is not you. Your child is allowed to make mistakes of his or her own, right? And to go on living his or her own life, no matter uh, whether you approve of that life or whether it's the life that you hope your child will have. That's the same thing with characters and, you know, short stories or novels. They do come out of you. But at some point, they have a life of their own. And so you have to listen to them, to their urges, to their complaints, to their bickering. And what I might say in a given situation is not necessary what my character will say in a given situation. So I have to be very careful and not to slip into this self-indulgence. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. Hemingway was very self-indulgent. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you if you, if you if you go back to his novels, um, you know, his Nick characters, you know, they, they sound a lot like him. So.
1: Yeah, you had an interesting quote in your interview with Christine Sneed uh, where you said that you end up unearthing your own secrets and seeking ways to justify your own sins, but right. for a fictional character, it strips away authenticity. So it was an interesting the the way that you posit intimacy versus authenticity. It's not always the same thing when you're at least when you're writing.
2: No, it's it's not the same thing because your characters uh, have different lives.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So if you bring your own intimacy into their lives is going to be, you know, not their intimacy. It's yours. And it's your experience. Even though they are part of me, but they're allowed to disagree with me. Mm-hmm. You know, I allow them that. They're never mouthpieces. Uh, in fact, somebody just told me um, that one of the most fascinating things about the orchard was the... The politics. Mm -hmm. That how well were the politics integrated? That they, uh, the writer who told me that said it's very hard to do because at some point you end up preaching. So you end up internalizing and then externalizing your own political views. Mm -hmm. But because there were so many arguments between the characters about politics, it is very hard to know or pick whose views is mine, <laughs> all right. of those views or none. And and I always keep that in mind, you know, I always keep that in mind. I, I hope I am capable of creating three-dimensional characters. I think,
1: at least for me, in the way that the politics were integrated, it almost created this... A political effect in that sense in that um you, you have these arguments but they change over time you have a a mother who doesn't like the soviet union by the end of the book says well you know at least people cared about things back then which is at least when i was studying abroad there's something that people would say all the time um so it was a very realistic point uh to hear you know being made but it also captured this kind of it sense I think that I guess the part of the, the coming of age as a teenager the way that politics are often a backdrop to what it is that you're doing where you're just kind of like I just want to do my own thing I just want to be my own person uh, and you have all this barking kind of going on in the background and you're just like God, enough of you know mom and dad fighting about politics or you know the neighbors coming by and in, in getting involved I think it was a very universal sort of right. uh, feeling that is evoked at least for me mm-hmm.
2: all right but also you know in that time, Perestroika, even if you you are a teenager and, you know, we were teenagers and, you know, some of us said, well, you know, whatever. It, it was such a tumultuous time. It was such a hard time. It was such a unnerving time mm-hmm. that we all ended up being part of Perestroika. Sure. So how can you not? And also now... The oligarchs are lapotins mm-hmm.
0: They, yeah. too,
2: are generation perestroika. Mm-hmm. So that's what's fascinating to me, that that generation cleaved in two. You know, there would be people who would, you know, remain honest and decent and hardworking people who would do, you know, anything to make the lives of others better were rather selfless. I have a lot of friends like that. But then there would be Lapartans
1: mm-hmm.
2: who don't care about anything other than their own empires. And, you know, like Anya said, you know, if you could, you would have sold stars from the sky. <laughs> so it puzzles me, and I try to reconcile it in my fiction how my generation raised pretty much, you know, the same Um, eating the same foods, watching the same movies, reading the same books, but how different, Mm. you know, we we grew up to be. Mm -hmm. Very different. I mean, like, the opposite side of the spectrum.
0: I think that that is, going briefly back to, you know, the discussion of the politics in the novel, that's one of, like, the greatest successes is the integration of the politics into like an authentic family life like matt was mentioning of like hearing the kind of the background of the parents and you're going through life and you're hearing people around you they're you know arguing and you see where they both come from and like you say everyone's consuming more or less the same media and you you, you the characters all are wonderfully authentic because you really begin to feel how coming from the same starting point why they're all diverging off and you know given their characteristics and their environment and how they're growing up and it it feels yeah they, they've you see it's it's a really effective way of of i don't know analyzing understanding i i I see what you mean when you say you feel like you're, you're trying to hear a story that's even a surprise to you they're very authentic in that way
1: it's true so i have a question specifically related to the orchard and let's say eastern european culture more broadly just from a little bit about well it's 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 a long story so what well, <laughs> But I'll ask it in the form of, of a question. One of my linguistics professors here, she has a uh, something for like first-year Russian students. It's this intercultural dictionary that um, students have to match phrases with words. But it, you know, it shows things that are um, maybe not exactly how you would translate them. And so this came across to me in the relationship uh, between Milka and Anya. Uh, what does it mean to be to have uh, a friend that's a girl in in Russia, or Eastern Europe? Um, and this is also in the this intercultural dictionary. The word "padruga" or like girlfriend, female friend, it carries a different connotation in Eastern Europe. It's uh, at least from what I can understand, what I've been able to glean. Um, and it's not addressed, at least not explicitly, until I think page eighty-seven. I marked a quote, which is the first time that I noticed you mention it. Um, but it was implicit all the way up until then. And this is when Anya gets Milka tickets to see Tutsi. Um, and she says, she said it was the best gift anyone had ever given her. And if she were a man, she'd try and dress up like a woman just so she could be friends with me, but without any kind of implied weirdness. Um, and this, but without any kind of implied weirdness, uh, to me, kind of having an understanding of these relationships, it was, it it didn't need to be explicit, but maybe for a Western audience, it does. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk about like writing this intimate and very close relationship um that does not have this sort of connotation that um, Lepatin thinks it might in in other areas of the book when he's just, you know, being a pig, um, for instance. And some of those challenges when you're thinking about your audience writing in English, which is for a lot of Westerners.
2: Well, I think it comes from being those kind of relationships. There are when a person becomes your second self or your other self or a darker side to your lighter one or a lighter one to your darker one. Um, I think it stems from, from the culture itself, but also from being raised in those tiny, um, apartments without the possibility to ever traveling abroad and, you know, so really, the only outlets that you would have would be reading and friendships. And so it's very peculiar to maybe Soviet world, you know, probably you know uh, the Russian world, but the Soviet world, because um, what did we do? We spent time together, all the holidays, and the apartments would be so small and so cramped. So you end up sleeping in the same bed, right? And wearing the same clothes. In fact, if someone I remember would have somehow procured a pair of jeans, now the rest of us would have to slim down (laughs) to fit into those jeans and we would borrow them. Um, That's also very, very uh, specific to that world I came from. So that closeness, I think, Uh, came from, you know, having to share such a small space, which has always been kind of paradoxical because Russia Soviet Union was an enormous country. I mean, the landscape is enormous. But then we always lived in those small flats and... You know where we had to cohabitate all of us um some of us lived in communal apartments and we shared kitchens and bathrooms and people would have like uh they would be like this room goes to the bathroom at eight o'clock this other room you know goes at eight fifteen. <laughs> so you had to even stand in line to use a toilet so i think that's where the closeness comes from and also because you end up spending so much time together, we're so uh, separate here. You know, we—it's a very individualistic co- a culture. Where you know, Soviet Union was a communal culture. You know, and also socialism—that's what it is. You know, you have a community versus the individual. Where here we have individual versus community. <laughs> I actually had a. Um, We had a a Q&A session at Holland's where I graduated with another author. And when somebody asked us, about the difference between a short story and a novel. She said, "But to me, short stories are about individuals and novels are about community. So I told her, so you're saying short stories are socialist. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, or a short story is a capitalist, but, you know, novels are socialist because they're about community. (laughs) So she was laughing. But honestly, if you think about it, that's what that closeness um, comes from, where you end up ultimately knowing the other as well, Almost as well as you know yourself. And I think that's why Anya, despite all the new things in her life, right? Everything that she's been able to achieve, and she has a very loving relationship with her husband, the past haunts her. Mm-hmm. Because at some point, when they have this conversation about you know grief and grieving, grieving Kubler Ross's article, and 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 she said, "But what if your life is inextricable from that of the
1: deceased?" That was my favorite line of the book, <laughs> by the way.
2: And so, so she grieving for that part of herself, right, that she lost, and 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 that's why you know she feels compelled to go back because she keeps. Being haunted by that. But we're all, in some ways, I don't know about you guys. You're younger and fresher, as I can see. (laughs) I don't know if you're haunted by your past, but I certainly am. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh,
2: Not just people, but places. Places keep haunting you. And also, because the country... Uh, where I grew up, no longer exists. So I can't go back to that country, for better or for worse, but I can't go back to that country. So and I kept revisiting it in my stories, novels, my dreams, maybe.
1: I know we were going to ask the next question, but I had a particular one when we're talking about literary influences. So much Pushkin, I thought, um, in, in a lot of the parts. But this one specifically being haunted by your dreams. I underlined this one passage, and maybe it was just because we just read Eugene Onegin for the uh, the podcast, uh, but Anya talking about her being haunted by her dream uh, where she has to cross this long deserted bridge. All I could think about was um, the, the tie-in with Tatiana's dream in Onegin, and the idea of being haunted by this constantly, um, not in the material world, but still having that weigh on you so heavily, I thought was... I, I liked it.
2: <laughs> well, you would be... Surprised, or maybe not, because, you know, everything is connected in the world. If you can find that bridge that connects mm-hmm. it. But, so the novel originally was called The Time Between Wolf and Dog. And that saying is French, used first in literature by Pushkin in Eugene Onegin. Okay. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> but, you know, that time of the day that he describes as dusk. And Mm -hmm. the reason that I wanted to title the novel Time Between Wolf and Dog is that I considered perestroika that time when the old order, you know, sort of collapsed, Mm -hmm. but the new one hasn't risen yet. So the old order keeps lingering, just like the sky lingers with color when the sun sets. Mm -hmm. But the night hasn't arrived yet. So, But my publisher, my editor, they kept saying that nobody, that they they just didn't want that title because no one could remember that title. And they kept calling the novel that Russian novel, that Russian novel. So (laughs) so, so, (laughs) we had to go to the orchard, even though I was against the orchard.
0: uh, Really? Okay. To begin
2: Hmm. with, yeah. But
0: Mm -hmm. Interesting. right so so initially you mentioned that in in a lot of ways um the the orchard is kind of coming from like the story you wanted to tell and then connecting that to seeing a a a production of of the play the the cherry orchard so was that is that element originally was that kind of something that came in more in later drafts as you were kind of rewriting it and that became more prominent or was that always there
2: well the original story that was published in the southern review and is actually in my collection champions of the world that's what it's called champions of the world that story um had only two characters milka and Anya. but i kept going back to them because people kept asking me is is this should be a novel is there a longer piece or because the story itself was almost 40 pages Hmm. And so when I sat down to finally turn that story into a novel, and that also coincided with me traveling to Moscow and seeing the cherry orchard at the Moscow Art Theatre, where it was originally originally staged, um, I believe it was 1893, something like that. But <clears throat> so as I was watching the play. And listening to the characters talk, especially um, Trefimov, the eternal student, he hmm. so to speak sermons about life and how we must work. And I, am sitting there thinking, my God, it's it's so familiar. It just sounds so familiar. It's <laughs> talking about the same thing. I mean, hundred years ago they they talked about this. Now they still talk about this. And and I said, hmm, that may be. You know something to think about and once i started writing um i knew that's what i wanted to do and also the four characters there are four elements uh, lapartin is fire you know because he really burns everything in his wake you know he burns those books and stuff and then of course trifonov has asthma so he's always start for air um And, you know, he's kind of a spirit, too, because he's a spiritual leader. So he's air. And then there's Milka. She's called Sprat. It's a tiny fish. And she is kind of very, you know, slippery character in many ways. Um, And and sort of, you know, they do have lots of, remember, they swim. Mm -hmm. They take baths together. So she is the water. And then Anya, of course, is the earth because... For one thing, she's the barrier, right, of all the stories. And she plants the orchard, so she's connected, I mean, no orchard, so she's connected to the earth. But also because she's sort of, she grounds everyone,
0: Mm.
2: you know, And, and so she is the earth. And also the, you know, I hope the earth survives Mm. (laughs) it goes on existing (laughs) so so that's uh that was my take on the characters but uh, of course lapatian is based on lapachian and trifon on trofimov
0: right Interesting. So slightly kind of change up the talk, topic a little bit, but I, I, I want to go back uh, briefly to something you said earlier about the, the interesting paradox of the Soviet Union being such a large country and yet um, land being something that was people being so close together in these apartment complexes. I thought that's something that was represented really well in when we get to okay and this part I'm going to drop some spoilers for later in the book so I will I'll, if you look at the show notes you can skip to a time card where we're not going to be discussing that uh when we're you know after the breakup of the Soviet Union and we're we're when Anya's you know back and um Lopatin and um I forget his name uh, are their company are trying to buy the, the dacha uh the, the the all the dacha that are out you know in the countryside I think it's really interesting to be have this country, which land has before, you know, land land has always been important, but suddenly now land has has value, and you know, dachas outside of Moscow or something, like that's 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 where we can build, that's where someone can make a, a you know, can make a fortune in one way or another, and I think it's really interesting. Also, kind of getting to you saying that, kind of like the basic difference between the the socialist and capitalist world is that sense of community, um, that which is kind of inherent to maybe because of the apartment complexes, which is now, like you say it's the world that exists it's it's got a spiritual presence but it's also kind of dead and you know people are now living in this new individualist world where they maybe their they're worth something and someone wants to speculate on it or something like that i thought that was really that was a powerful feeling there's, there's a lot of literature reading about this era which conveys conveys it in different ways and this was a really very powerfully personal one but speaking of dachas, the actual question I wanted to ask was, uh, so for some of our readers who may be a little bit less familiar with um, Russian culture, can you talk a little bit more about the the importance of, of the dacha? Cause this is this is a very important piece of the book, the, the dacha, or Anya's parents' dacha.
1: A
2: lot of people, when I was growing up, and I grew up in Moscow, so a lot of people in the cities would have a small country house, um, usually about... 70 to 100 miles from the city. And generally the piece of land that you were given, to kind of a free farm, it was given by the government through your work, usually. And usually it was a very small parcel of land. All you could do is build a small house and then, of course, you know, like grow vegetables or fruit. Uh, Some people, for example, had two parcels of land, you know, one from one, (laughs) Uh, you know, they both worked in the same co-op, say, and they'll tell them, okay, you can have two because they both work here. But generally they were very small. And then you build a house there. You do, you know, you own the house, but you don't own the land so technically you couldn't back then you couldn't sell it uh you could bequeath it you could exchange it but you couldn't sell it perestroika changed all that so we became owners of those small parcels of land or you know our little gardens that we grew there and so it was very common and I know that most people would try to grow anything they could, therefore, like we had a dacha, and I remember there was just one small path from the gates, like a wicked gate, to the house. And the rest was covered with gooseberry bushes, some apples, some cherries, Um, could be like strawberry patches. Uh, my mother did not like to work in the garden. <laughs> so remember my grandmother and me and my cousins always had to work, put manure under the trees, for example. Yeah, I mean, we were rewarded later with jam. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how they would make us do things. Uh, You've got to do this now, dig in this manure, but then later on, you're going to have those beautiful apples and, you know, you're going to make some jams and stuff. And then there were currants, I remember, and raspberries. Not much, but but enough to eat and enjoy and maybe can some. uh, So later in the winter, you have something to eat, you, you know, can survive. But some people never had such opportunity. So they never had a Dacha. And um, you know, it was considered unfortunate because a Dacha is like a little escape from the city into the wilderness. Although it was not really the wilderness, but around it there were forests and rivers and you could kind of your gaze rested. I loved it. I loved going to the Dacha, even though It was very poorly constructed uh we did not just like anya uh all our utilities you know toilets and stuff everything was outside um and when we had to take showers indeed we had to heat up buckets and buckets of water and you know a lot of times when we were little we took showers outside behind the main house. It was, you know, now I think of it as a fun time. Mm. But back then, (laughs) it was an undertaking. And my grandmother, uh, my grandmother and my grandfather, who always stayed with us at the country house because our parents worked. Mm -hmm. Now, I remember how they tried to teach us things so we could survive later. So And some of it did go into the orchard uh, because the way those characters navigate through lies, Maybe it's not so different from any teenager, but it is very different for those characters uh, because they inherit inherited the country that one day just crumbled, collapsed. Not every teenager goes through that, the loss of a country. And of course, that brought the loss of many things, you know, friendships and loves and parents, but the loss of a country, it's um, its a hard thing to bear.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm wondering, especially talking about going through this perestroika period, some of the people that we've read have echoed this similar sentiment that was in towards probably the end of the orchard, but I'm wondering kind of how you feel going through that this relationship between nature and man, nature and people. This is such a prevalent theme throughout the book. Um and and some some of the people that we've read like just for instance for the podcast we've read Prelepin and there's a really extensive extensive parts of his books talking about the you know the destruction of of nature essentially. Um, in the decay of these places that used to be beautiful and that still carry this kind of nostalgic value. And so I'm wondering kind of how, how you see that. Maybe it's a, a specifically having to do with the dacha culture of Eastern Europe uh, or if it's something greater, perhaps.
2: I think it has something to do with, with uh, well, with, at least with the Russian culture, because if you go back to the Cherry Witchard and you would see the same, again, um, Maybe that's why I had to write the orchard or or that's why I wrote it the way I wrote it. Because if you go back to the cherry orchard, you see how those characters talk about the estate, the garden, the cherry orchard that doesn't produce enough cherries. They can't do anything with them. I mean, it's half dried out. And that estate also is kind of falling apart, even though Mm -hmm. it once was prosperous and posh. And... You know, of course, it's an allusion to the You know, it's it's the country that's falling apart, right? But it was not that much different in Chekhov's times um, as it, it was and is in our times. So the destruction of nature—that theme—was one of Chekhov's favorite themes. Uh, that you know, the men. know, can destroy anything around them and that's what i believe um that's also an illusion on the cherry orchard when trifon says that you know when they talk about the garden i mean the the orchard and how beautiful it is and uh, everything and how eternal it right eternal nature is eternal it's beauty and, you know, the trees, they survive the blizzards and they look dead, but then Spring spring, And then Trifonov says, and yet, a man can destroy them with a simple axe,
1: mm-hmm.
2: like anything around him. But that's an allusion to the cherry orchard. So, mm-hmm. uh, it's not really Prolepin's you know, <laughs> theme, <No>. right? <laughs> so, if you go back to Russian literature, uh, Soviet literature, but also Russian literature, that theme was always there, but I think Chekhov was obsessed with the destruction, the man, you know, men bring to this earth, and how you know let all all of his plays deal with that, not just with art, loneliness, with human beings, but also with destruction, of nature, and of the world around us.
1: Yeah, I yeah that is interesting. I mean for the orchard definitely, I kind of wonder too because well, trees obviously you can destroy them with an axe, but I wonder about some of the other imagery in the book too, because there's a lot of imagery with water, uh, specifically, and there's almost this sublime description of the way that water is represented that made me think a little bit about Pushkin as well. on on page 153 they're looking out of the water saying naked the four of us face the darkness the terrifying infinity of water and night sky and i know we were talking about um dusk and i guess it's the, the transition to night um but just that sublime feeling that you can have when you look out and you can't see the end of the water the sky um i guess we see the i mean it's it's Mocking, saying Lapatin could sell the stars from the sky, kind of, it kind of like denigrates almost the sublime aspect of a night sky or of the water or something like that. Um, but that's very much a feeling that emanates from the novel, I thought.
2: Yeah, well, o- water also symbolizes rebirth.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but it's also night time when they're there, right? So we don't see. They can't see what is to come. Mm. And, you know, once we finish the novel, we know what is to come. So they they don't see their future. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, and But they are naked. If there's rebirth. They come out of the water and they look at all that, that ahead of them that they can't see in those countries, but also their future. And... Behind them, the land they they could never leave, right? Uh, And even though Anya does leave, but does she really? I mean, Mm do you see what I'm saying? So Mm -hmm. she can never leave that land. And not physically. Physically, she did leave. But the land and the country keeps haunting her because it, it holds all her memories you know uh, sad happy but it holds all those youth memories and we all well not you guys you're still very very young but, but all of us we we long for our youth you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it, it's I guess it's some human nature to long for one's youth but also because Everything is still ahead of you. Everything is possible. So it's not per se even those memories, but it's the feeling of being able to do whatever you want to do. I, one of my favorite films, um, it's a Paolo Sorrentino's film, Youth. It's actually one of his uh, uh, English-language films because most of his films are in the Italian <clears throat> language. So, But in that movie... And I just re-watched it recently, that's why I'm quoting. <laughs> but um, among many things, and that movie is, say, what I would love to do with, with novels. It's to express the ineffable, which is that movie does brilliantly. But there, an old filmmaker is teaching um, a young <clears throat> student, Right, it has a few students with him, not per se how to make films with the right scripts, but how to imagine or envision something. So they're in, in the Swiss Alps and they're looking for a telescope. And he tells his student to look through this one end of the telescope. And what he sees in the students, oh, everything's so close, it's so bright. And he says, yes, that's your future. Mm-hmm. Because you, you, know, you know, he is young. And then he turns around the telescope and asks the student to look from the other side and what do you see oh everything is so dark kind of far away shriveled. and the old filmmaker says yes because that's my past <laughs> <laughs> so are so there's a different perspective um yeah. so the few, you know youth when you're young holds that perspective that everything is big and bright and you're capable of achieving whatever you set to achieve but then you know the telescope is turned around. <laughs> <laughs> so the novel for me, you know, is like a telescope turned around.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. You
2: know, and there's all that past mm. that Anya is, you know, held close and then that's it's really is the past. Mm-hmm. But she's, you know, she's tethered.
0: Mm-hmm. Still visible. Right, right. She mm-hmm.
2: can't leave it behind. It's right there, even though it's far away.
0: It reminds me from a line from um, in, in English, Lumila Lulitko's the funeral party, which when they' when the the characters are all watching the the August coup happen on on the tell- or news about the August coup. Um, and you know, each of them all coming from different backgrounds saying that you know, it, most of them had kind of disconnected themselves from the old country, but seeing this happen now, kind of they began to realize that this you know country sat in their souls, sat in their guts, and it was something that would never truly go away.
2: Yeah, well, I was there when the coup took place. I was there on the streets. I remember everything very, very, very well and vivid. And but, but I think these were the moments. Actually, even though no matter how tremulous and sad and tragic they were, those were moments of um, brightness for us because uh, we we fought for our future and we believed that we could achieve a better future so i think democracy if we ever had any um was there at the moment Mm. in 1991 and maybe 1993 but after that something just sort of went wrong
0: Mm -hmm. kind of a sad note to leave it off on but i think that it's been it's been been a wonderful conversation and we wanted to, to pose to you and ask you about Um, what do you think looks next for you in your author's note, which by the way, if you, you know, for those of you, hopefully you've all read the book, if you're listening to this, but if you haven't, obviously go and buy it and you'll find the links in the show notes. Um, but there's also a wonderful author's note at the end, which kind of talks through a lot of how the orchard came to be. Um, and, and for you, this, this is, this is a story that's been a long time coming. So what what are you, are you looking at anything in particular next or working on anything big? If it's a secret, that's, you know, you just say that, but,
2: um, I did finish a new novel, Mm-hmm. Oh. I just finished it. Um, it's called Sputnik Hotel. Okay. Uh, it's set at the same, pretty much the same times, maybe a few years into the future, uh, but the same time, 1986, 1987, but has a completely different story, different characters. Mm. It's a love triangle mm. between two boys and a girl. Uh, they all have secrets and um, they fight. Not so much for the future of their country, although they ended up doing that too, but they fight, the two boys fight for the girl. And it takes a long time and a long you know, life, practically, to find out what really happened and who gets the girl. <laughs> That's very important, <laughs> who gets the girl. But it also, um, it has a happier ending, let's put it this way, or maybe a more optimistic ending. Sure. Although um, one person who read it, my husband said, well, so he does get the girl, but then he thought, he paused, and he said, did he? Or did he imagine getting the girl? (laughs) (laughs)
1: So I always
2: love... That kind (laughs) so do we really know or is that something he imagined and wrote about and crafted a book Mm -hmm. out of his memories? And I would like for the readers, you know, to decide Mm -hmm. whether it really did happen or whether you know he reconstructed his memories and gave them the ending that he desired so that's and it's you know it's it's done so we're ready my agent and I are ready to submit it <clears throat> and i just finished a short story the war short story um, it's i guess it's my duty as an artist mm. to be speaking out uh, against the war and so that Short story is called the Kiev Symphony. And it has parallels to Shostakovich's The Leningrad Symphony, the Seventh Symphony. Um, so in it is about an old Soviet composer, one of the last living Soviet composers who had been proposed by uh, the FSB people to write a symphony. And Victoria's Symphony to welcome Russian soldiers back from the war. And what that composer turns around and does is in the story, and it's called the Kiev Symphony. And it's dedicated, of course. It's also my symphony that's dedicated to the Ukrainian people and everyone who fights mm-hmm. to protect their country and save their country. So we will see what happens.
0: Yeah, that that makes sense. I remember reading an interview you gave, I think maybe last month, where you were talking about Shostakovich's uh, or Shostakovich. I always say Shostakovich, uh, Shostakovich's uh, Seventh Symphony. Yeah, that now, know it this context, that I, I see where yeah. where the thoughts are coming from.
2: Yeah, it's it's a very important symphony in the sense that, um, well, he wrote it fairly quickly, unless maybe less than six months, but it's an enormous undertaking, a few movements. And, you know, there were speculations that there's no way he could have written it in such a short period of time. And that he began writing it before Hitler invaded the Soviet Union. So it was not really... Some people speculate that it was not really against Hitler so much as Stalin or both. So it was against tyranny, you know, and it uh, was dedicated to all the people who died from the tyranny, you know, in the gulags as well as, you know, and during the blockade, and, and and those who survived, because through his music he could talk to those people, and, and that's why it is so important to this particular story, and also because it's really not, you know, it's not a victorious symphony. And that's why in the first movement, we have that bassoon solo, even though Stalin expected this, you know, grand finale with Brace and all that, you know. and But, but what he got was this you know, kind of a weird, haunting, pleading sound, the bassoon, which... You know, some people compared of the mother's cry a mother pleading, you know, for murdered children. So it's it's a very important symphony. And so that's why I've been researching it. I've been listening to it. Of course, my son is a pianist, so, you know, I know a lot about music. And it was very interesting to draw those parallels uh, in my story. But we will see.
0: <laughs> we shall we'll see.
2: see. Maybe it's a bad story. I don't know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it sounds like a lot of thought was going into it. And like you say, I think I'm uh, when, it, when it comes out, I'm really interested in, Always. in reading it.
2: Well, if it comes out. But yeah, I like your take on it when it comes out. That's yeah. better. <laughs> yeah. That's better. Yeah, that's the attitude. That's the attitude. I love yeah. that attitude. That's also, um, uh, it's one of the attitudes I love about this country. We, we think about when, not if. We're... Where I come from, mm-hmm. it's always an if, mm. because like those characters, you know, they're facing their future, but it's very dark.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there's there's always there's always art. There's always yes, there's art. art.
2: That's what we live for, and that's mm-hmm. that's what will save humanity. Art. Dostoevsky believed it would be what beauty, It would save the world. <laughs> I think art would save the, mm-hmm. the world. Yeah. Here's to all artists
0: here's to all i'll uh, hold on let me, let me pour real quick let me do quick, quick quick uh there we go proper proper toast right to all artists and cheers to all, art. to
2: all artists <laughs> made survive the evil
0: yes exactly and and hopefully people can look back on it in the future and uh laugh and love and cry and think about it and everything everything that it can bring out in the, in the emotion
2: yes art bears witness always
0: mm-hmm. yes yeah I don't think I'll ever quite forget uh, being in. Um, I know kind of, this is a goodbye uh, almost, but I, I'll never quite forget being in in um, in Petersburg and visiting one of the uh, the mass graves, and they're pumping out. I think they're they're playing the Seventh Symphony, and you know, it's a it's a very constructed experience, but all the same was very emotional. And I remember just staring out across all the graves, and uh, I think bring, brought up to the edge of tears, maybe even crying, just listening to the music and staring out at, at the costs of war.
2: Right. The costs of war, exactly so. And that's what we're looking at now, the costs of war. And I know there would be many people who would write or compose the Kiev symphony. So,
0: Well, Christina, thank you so much for being here today. This has been a wonderful conversation and very enlightening, especially about the themes of the book, which also, again, you should all absolutely go out and get, and you can find all the links in the show notes.
2: Thank you so much, guys. Thank you for inviting me and for reading The Orchard.
0: <laughs> it was our pleasure.
2: <laughs> Thank you. I had, a, I had a great time. Thank you. Bye.
0: Well, as much as we're loath to move on from this wonderful conversation, Matt, we do have to talk about what we're going to be reading for next time, and this is kind of an interesting one, actually.
1: Yes. Next episode, we're going to be sitting down with Dr. Jose Vergara to talk about his book, All Futures Plunged to the Past: James Joyce in Russian Literature. We're going to be reading uh, Yuri Alisha's book, Envy, and then we're going to be discussing uh dr vergara's book which touches on envy and its connection to joyce and it's gonna be a real it's gonna be a real kicker we got a lot to go through in about an hour so you're gonna want to tune in
0: it's a lot the, I, okay let me admit something to you right here matt um i did not look up when we when we were doing this before we recorded and yeah spoiler alert behind the scenes we already recorded this um (gasps) i did not realize that i did not realize that envy was a full novel i thought it was a book because we already like we had the text of dr vergara's book and i was like well i'll read that you know read the short story day before we record i sit down to pull up envy and i realize that it is not a short story it is in fact a whole 170 page book
1: i told you it was a novella
0: i know and then i forgot because i'm not a very good co-host <laughs> uh so that was that was a very uh hectic day I'm glad i already didn't have plans uh my i went from like a little fun little coffee shop read to a very serious coffee shop read
1: oh my god i gotta finish i mean yeah, i think the episode came out good if i do say so myself
0: it was it was a good yeah it was a good read uh glad i i i had was able to read it all through in one sitting they actually made it better and then the episode itself was also so much fun and i'm looking forward to you all hearing it
1: indeed well, before we let you go, we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons who are just, we are so, so close to getting back to publishing three times a month. We're like $6 away from our goal. Uh, so if you want to help your favorite Russian literature podcast boost back up to three times per month, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash tipsy to join with our current patrons. We've got so many wonderful faces. We've got Janice, Jeff, Jesse, Madeline, Ann, Daniel, another Daniel who we also love, Lou, Paige, Alex, Brandon, Cole, Irini, Darren, Jack, Larkin, Allison, Elise, Joanne, Yitza, Caitlin, Mysterious Donor Dude, Stephanie, Julie, Brett, Austin, Eli, Isaac, Pacrob, and Zachary. Like I said, so many wonderful people podcasting isn't free and grad school refuses to pay me very well no matter how much i complain in my episodes so if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running take a look at patreon.com slash tipsy tolstoy
0: the music used in this episode was soviet march by toasted tomatoes you can find more of their stuff on toasted and also on youtube under the same username if you're looking for the places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Tipsy Podcast, or join our email list on our website, TipsyTolstoy.com. Tipsy
1: Tolstoy Podcast. You'll hear from us again soon. <laughs> he said it funny. <laughs>